Hello. So what is the mind? Is it a kind of place where thoughts happen? Is it a is it a substance made by God that exists before your body is born and continues to exist after your body dies? Is it a property of matter? Is it something produced by the brain and uh, like the liver produces bile? Or is it a function of the brain like digestion is a function of the body of the stomach? Or is it a is the mind a functional activity of the body as a whole? <clears throat> so these are some of the ways people have thought about the mind. Uh, today I want to start looking at some classic theories of the mind by taking a look at the prominent proponents of these theories in the early 20th century or thereabouts. You can divide up theories of the mind in various ways. I'm going to make a, a broad distinction today between dualisms and monisms. Dualists think mind and matter are made out of two different kinds of things, while monists think that mind and matter are the same kind of thing, made out of the same kind of thing. Uh, there were at least three major kinds of dualism discussed in the early 20th century and about three major forms of monism. In this episode, I'm just going to introduce the dualistic theories of mind, and in another episode, I'll talk about monistic theories. Uh, I, I have my own favorite view of the mind, of course, but I'm not going to try to argue now that one theory is better than the others. I simply want to try to state um, what they are, which I think can be helpful just by itself. The theories that I'll discuss in this and in the next episode were mainstream, respectable academic and scientific theories in the early 20th century. And to a great extent, they still are today. Um, everyone I'm going to talk about took science seriously, and they thought that their view fit the scientific facts. They thought it fit the facts the best, of course. Um, they were trying to, everyone I'm talking about was trying to understand the mind in light of scientific knowledge and scientific method. So I think knowing about these views is important because they show how people have tried to make sense of the this very old concept that we have of the mind or the soul and they're trying to make sense of this in a context of rapidly growing scientific knowledge and this is still our situation today so i think you know it's useful to look back at what how people were thinking about the mind at this time um, it's hard to know exactly where to begin when discussing these theories um, in their modern forms they all developed in response to each other and to understand one theory of mind, it helps to understand all the others. But of course, we got to start somewhere. Uh, so today I'll talk about the dualists. Um, and I'll talk about the dualists first because they uh, it still has a strong intuitive appeal for many people. And the early dualism does, right? In the early 20th century, there were three kinds of dualists. There were interactionists, there were parallelists, and there were the automatists or epiphenomenalists. These terms are both used. Again, all these views were developed in response to each other and also in response to monistic and materialistic theories. But let's start with interactionism, which in a certain sense is the oldest view. So interactionism... Uh, the most famous modern interactionist in modern philosophy, I should say, is uh, Descartes. Descartes thought that human beings were made up of two different things, the soul and the body. The soul is what does the thinking, while the, and while the body is alive, the soul is tied to the body. 
um, but it's able to continue to exist without the body, or at least he uh, thinks this is a good possibility. Descartes hypothesized that the soul was connected to the body through the pineal gland in the brain, some tiny part of the brain. Uh, but in the early 20th century, a major defender of interactionism was William McDougall. McDougall was uh, one of the major psychologists of the time. His major defense of dualism is found in his 1911 book, Body and Mind, A History and Defense of Animism. McDougall um, preferred the term animism because he wanted to show that his view represented a continuity with older theories of the mind or soul. Animism, uh, you may have heard, is a term used in anthropology normally, uh, referring to belief systems of many tribal societies in which spirits are believed to inhabit um, just many different objects of the physical world. McDougall thought that mental and biological processes could not be adequately described and explained in terms of mechanism. This is why he, I guess, was drawn to dualism, or at least was his rationalization for being a, a dualist about um, the soul. So he thought that um, everything about life could not really be quite described using just mechanistic principles. I won't get to, into all of McDougall's arguments here, but the idea of mechanism in studying life is that mechanical changes in the environment, so changes of temperature or the presence of certain chemicals and so on, uh, these kinds of changes lead directly to reactions by the organism. So when people say mechanical, you're supposed to think of billiard balls or other bits of matter kind of bumping into each other. But McDougall points out that an amoeba, for example, a single-celled organism, the amoeba, will sometimes change its direction in ways that don't seem correlated with local stimulations of its body, if it's being chased or if it's seeking, you know, chasing something, whatever. Uh, so the, the behavior of the amoeba doesn't seem as predictable as it should be if it's acting just on mechanical principles. And because of this and many other such examples, McDougall thinks that we need something like a soul in order to adequately describe and explain human and animal behavior, basically living the behavior of living organisms, not just um, non-living objects. So what is this soul that McDougall thinks is necessary? So first of all, it's non-material. It does not have extension or mass, so it's not extended in space. It doesn't weigh, you can't weigh it right? Um, if the soul was material, then it would be subject to mechanical laws. And if it was subject to mechanical laws, then it would not help us to explain living creatures, which seem, uh, which seem to escape um, mechanical laws in some respects. So first of all, the soul is a different kind of thing than material things. McDougall doesn't like the baggage of the word substance, so he just calls the word uh, calls the soul a thing or a being, or more specifically, a psychic being. And even more specifically, the soul is what he calls a sum of enduring capacities for thoughts, feelings, and efforts of determinate kinds. Or he also says the sum of definite capacities for uh, psychical activity and psychophysical interaction. In short, the soul is a collection of capacities for intellectual, emotional, and volitional activity. McDougall believes that the soul, as a psychic being, has four fundamental capacities. So it's the sum of certain capacities, 
And these are the four ones that he think are thinks are fundamental, like the most important ones. So first, um, so in response to the sensory processes of the brain, so the brain responding to sensation or to stimuli through its sense organs. Um, so in response to this, it produces the whole range, the soul produces the whole range of sensation qualities in their whole range of intensities. So the soul is responsible for producing uh, sensations, the different intensities and qualities of sensations. And then into, in response to these uh, sensation complexes that it produces, it also produces meaning. So what is the meaning of some group of sen sensations that we have? And then in response to sensations and meanings, the soul produces feelings and desires, which bring about further meanings. And then the soul reacts on brain processes. This is the last, the fourth one. So the, the soul reacts on brain processes so as to modify and guide these processes. All right, so if I understand this correctly, there are three causal chains operating here. There's a causal chain from the brain to the soul in which uh, physical stimuli cause brain processes, which cause mental sensations. And then there's a causal there are causal chains within the soul in which sensations cause meanings which cause feelings and desires and then there's a causal chain from the soul back to the brain right and here the desires that are formed in the soul stimulate brain processes which uh, cause behaviors so the soul um, which is the sum of at least these four fundamental capacities is apparently only conscious when it's embodied so now getting to the idea of consciousness so the soul has kind of fundamental capacities but it's only conscious when it's in a body you know kind of apart from the body it has certain capacities which um, i talked about these four capacities but it only becomes conscious uh, within a certain organism so the soul per se is not a thinking being. It is a being capable of being stimulated to conscious activities through the agency of the body or brain with which it stands in relations of reciprocal influence. This is uh, how McDougall describes it. Um, basically, soul and body need to be interacting with each other for consciousness to happen. Uh, because of this, the body matters for how the soul expresses its capacities higher bodily and brain organizations allow for more complete expressions of the soul mcdougall doesn't exactly think that all souls um, that all souls are equal um, all souls have the same capacities the same fundamental capacities but these capacities don't um, do get enriched by their individual experiences so each individual soul kind of has its own experiences when it's embodied and this changes it in some way even though it still keeps these basic capacities. So you can imagine maybe that two souls that were equal would still express them, um, themselves differently if they were associated with different bodies, because the body, um, the capacities of the body also matter, like what natural capacities the body has. Um, yeah, so um, the body matters for how the soul actually expresses itself, even if there was kind of two equal souls. <clears throat> McDougall uh, was also impressed by the apparent unity and individuality of conscious experience. 
So he argues that the soul is in some sense a unitary being or entity distinct from all others. In this way, he rules out the pan, uh, panpsychic hypothesis, which is that the human or animal mind is made up of or compounded out of uh, lesser elements of mind stuff. But on the other hand, McDougall thinks that multiple souls can become associated with one body, and this explains certain interesting facts about human psychology, such as multiple personality disorders, or the fact that uh, human personality can be explained as a hierarchy of personalities. We kind of have these different personalities within us, but some are seem to have more control than others. And he thinks this is explained maybe by multiple souls. Interestingly, uh, McDougall thinks the soul is not involved in memory. So this seems to be one of the fundamental things about the mind is that we can remember. But McDougall thinks that this is just, um, that the evidence suggests that this is just a function of the nervous system. Uh, but the soul, as I said, does get enriched by its intellectual and moral efforts while it's associated with a body. And this is part of what drives evolution is that the soul getting enriched over time through different experiences. Uh, when the body dies and the soul moves on to another body, it does not take the body's memories with it, though, since the soul is not involved in memory. But it does bring with it enriched capacities. It's basic capacities which get, get, uh, which get enriched over time. Um, but I also have to wonder if uh, some souls get worse over time because of having like, bad bodily experiences. Or if you go from a human body to like an ant body, does then the soul lose some of its richness? I'm not sure. Um, I don't. I don't think McDougall comments on this. So anyway, um, to kind of conclude here with this section, uh, these seem to be the main to me to be the main points about McDougall's version of interactionist dualism, which again he called animism. The soul brings its capacities for thought and consciousness and meaning-making to the body, and these capacities only get realized as long as the soul is interacting with the body. But um, let's move on now to parallelism. For my parallelist, I'm going to take the philosopher George Stuart Fullerton. Modern parallelism actually goes back to about the time of Descartes as well, kind of like interact modern interactionism. Uh, Nicolas Malbranche uh, started out as a follower of Descartes, but then came to repudiate certain of Descartes' teachings, such as that body and mind can interact. After Malbranche, versions of parallelism were defended by many others into the 20th century. Uh, George Stuart Fullerton, who I'll focus on here, expressed his version of parallelism in a few places. Um, two of his major books are A System of Metaphysics, which is 1904, and um, An Introduction to Philosophy, which was 1906. Fullerton is very strict about the mind being immaterial. It is something not locatable in real time and space. So presumably he'd uh, have a similar idea as McDougall. For him, for Fullerton, there are two orders of existence, the objective and the subjective. There is no normal cause-effect relation between these two orders. So cause and effect belong to the objective order. And the relation of the objective order to the subjective order is utterly unique in existence. And this can't be captured by words like cause and effect. It's just something unique, this um, uh, mind-body relationship. 
Uh, so if we try to say, like an interactionist, that the mind is affected by the physical world, for say the brain, and that it affects the physical world, for example the brain, uh, we're turning something immaterial into something material. Right? So if we try to put the mind into a cause-effect relationship with matter, we're turning it, we're making it into a kind of matter. And uh, Fullerton thinks this is just um, illegitimate. So only material objects can have cause-effect relations with material objects, but the mind is clearly immaterial. He takes this, he kind of assumes this. This is just a basic assumption of his philosophy is that the mind is immaterial. Uh, therefore, the relation between mind and matter must be strictly parallel, right? They go along with each other and are tied together in some way, but there's no causal relation. It's a tricky idea, I find. Uh, so, for example, your body gets hit by something and there is a reaction in your brain which moves your body. So you move when you're hit by something or touched by something or stimulated by something, right? Something happens in the brain and it moves the body. But there's also a sensation in your mind. The reaction of your body and brain to being stimulated takes place in real, measurable space and time. But the mental sensation does not. This sensation occurs in another order of existence, the subjective order. And if we want to measure this, uh, measure the sensation, if we want to study the sensation, um, kind of objectively, we have to refer to the physical stuff going on in the body. But this physical stuff is not the sensation itself, nor is it actually the cause of the sensation. It's only that which is concomitant with the sensation. And this word concomitant is an, an important word for Fullerton. By concomitance, he basically means that uh, mental and physical changes coincide, but they're not actually causally related. So why do we have minds then? Um, if minds are part of a totally separate order of existence, which doesn't impact the physical world, what do we need minds for and why should we bother trying to know about them? The answer to these kinds of questions is not very clear in Fullerton's parallelism. At least they're not, the answers are not clear to me. Maybe they were clear to Fullerton. Um, but there are at least, at least two answers. So first, our ideas our ideas matter in some way. Deciding to do something, to try to attain some purpose. Um, this is a mental act. And this means that our idea of our purpose, our purpose might be getting a drink of water to quench our thirst, exercising to become healthier, going to school to become smarter. Um, but this idea of purpose is not an efficient cause of our actions. So efficient causes, and this is kind of Aristotelian terminology, but efficient causes uh, um, lie in the physical world of matter and motion. But Fullerton thinks, um, but Fuller, uh, so I should say Fullerton sometimes talks of ideas as being final causes. Again, this is an Aristotelian idea. So they are ends, our ideas are ends that we move towards, even though they don't have material effect. Uh, so the idea of improving your health or getting a drink does not really cause you to do anything, but it, uh, I guess, maybe draws your actions toward it in some way. And the details of how Fullerton thinks this work remain unclear to me. Uh, so it's important for Fullerton that the relation between mental and physical cannot be explained. I think part of the reason why I have trouble with this is that it's just beyond explanation for Fullerton, as at least as we normally use the word explanation. So because 
mental and physical belong to different classes, different orders of existence. They can't be tied together in a explanation as we normally conceive of explanations. So it may be that we have to leave the coincidence, the coinciding between mentally wanting a drink and physically going to get a drink. We may just have to leave this um, mysterious, you know, why both of these things uh, reliably happen at the same time. Uh, but the second answer about why we have minds is religious in nature. So Fullerton was a theist, meaning that he thought that the existence of God was revealed in nature. And it seems that Fullerton believed that mind had a special kind of relation to the divine order. This was also true of McDougall, by the way, also true of Descartes, Malbranche, and many others, you know, going from, <laughs> from the 20th century back many other uh, into many other centuries. Uh, so this was a con just a common um, belief at the time. Fullerton also believed that we cannot exclude the possibility of the mind being immortal. So the question of immortality was also a big one at this time, and of course going back centuries. So for a the uh, theistic parallelist, the mind still has a purpose, but it's a purpose that might lie beyond the physical world. So the, um, the idea that the mind doesn't matter to matter, so to speak, can lead us to think that the physical body is just an automaton, a kind of machine. You add fuel to it and it goes on by itself while the mind just kind of sits back and observes and feels, but doesn't really direct things. Fullerton wrestles with this conception at many points in his writings, and he tries to distinguish his own position from it. For Fullerton, our sensations and ideas matter to our behavior, though to me at least how he thinks they matter is not quite clear. But there's also the theory that our mental states don't matter to our behavior. This position is called automatism or epiphenomenalism, and I want to talk about it next. So automatism or epiphenomenalism has different senses, and it can be either dualistic or monistic. Uh, I just want to consider the dualistic version here. So the idea that um, mind and body are different things rather than that they're the same kind of thing. And here I'm going to focus on the biologist Thomas Huxley. Huxley was writing on this topic in the 1870s and 1880s, actually. Um, the essays that are usually mentioned in this context include on the hypothesis that animals are automata. This is an essay from 1874 on the hypothesis that animals are automata. Um, and then another essay from 1886 called Science and Morals. There's a few others that are touched on, but uh, I think those are the main ones that are often mentioned, especially the first one. Um, and probably other people held similar views in the early 20th century, but at this time... Um, epiphenomenalism, when it was discussed, was usually associated with Huxley. So people who were writing about the mind and different theories of the mind would often mention epiphenomenalism, but they were usually kind of arguing against it and associating it with Huxley. But there were probably also people who um, kind of held that view, but I'm not quite sure. I, g I guess I haven't come across one, but <laughs> I'm sure there was some. Uh, and it's actually not quite clear if Huxley was even a dualist, although many at the time considered him a dualist. So, but dualism is not a, a not a question Huxley spends a lot of time on. At the time, materialists, if you were a materialist, you thought that the universe consisted only of matter and force, matter and motion. We would call this monism today. 
and that was becoming a kind of a common idea at the time. But Huxley thinks that the universe also consists of consciousness, so it's not just matter and force, it's also consciousness. And he describes consciousness at least once in his writings as immaterial. Um, I think if Huxley were alive today, he'd probably be what we call a property dualist rather than a substance dualist. So meaning maybe that he thinks matter has both physical and mental properties rather than thinking like McDougall and Fullerton thought that there are two different kinds of substances in the universe. Uh, but who knows what um, Huxley would think if he were living today. Might have a totally different idea, I don't know. Uh, and it's worth pointing out also that Huxley often tends toward idealism rather than materialism. So he thinks all that we can know about for sure is consciousness. And everything beyond that is a hypothesis. So even matter and force, these are more hypotheses that we know about from observing consciousness. All right, so Huxley calls animals and humans conscious automata. The idea that animals are automata, which kind of machines or robots, um, goes back a long way, at least to Descartes. And Descartes was actually a major influence on Huxley. Descartes, however, thought animals, animals were not conscious. So he thought they were automata, but he did not think they were consciousness. He thought people, like physically, um, people were autom um, automata, but they had consciousness. But Huxley believes more in a greater continuity between animals and humans, right? Huxley was a great defender of evolution, of Darwin's version of evolution, and he thought there was a lot of continuity between animals and humans, so animals likely have some form of consciousness, maybe not as rich as ours, but he still thought animals were um, conscious in some sense. Uh, Huxley also believes in the universal validity of the law of causation, so, whereas Fullerton thought causation could not apply to mental stuff, uh, Huxley is going to believe, uh, say that more like um, McDougall. McDougall thought there was cause-effect relations between the mental and the physical, and Huxley also believes this in a certain way. We'll see what way he thinks this works. So, where, um, where Fullerton argued that the relation between material and immaterial phenomena cannot be causal, Huxley uh, is going to argue that molecular changes in the nervous system cause, they do in fact cause consciousness. And consciousness, Huxley says, is a function of the brain in the sense that a function is the effect of the activities of an organ. So movement is the function of muscles, right? the movement of the body is the function of the muscles, and consciousness is a function of the brain. And he says there's a lot of evidence from physiology to support this, as well as just everyday demonstration. So you pinch yourself, right? You pinch yourself, you stimulate, stimulate your nervous system, and you have a certain conscious sensation. Uh, for Huxley, we know as much about the cause-effect relation here as we do anywhere else, right? We never know all the exact details of how one event specifically causes another event, but there are certain... Um, there are definitely reliable re regularities in our experience of nature such that certain events reliably follow other events, even though we can't always say exactly how that works. So he thinks it's silly to not use cause-effect when talking about consciousness if we're using it to, to talk about other things where we also don't know exactly um, what's going on. But it's a useful concept, a useful law, according to him. 
Uh, on the other hand, Huxley does not find any evidence that consciousness affects the nervous system. So the nervous system obviously seems to affect consciousness. You pinch yourself, you have a conscious sensation, but the sensation doesn't seem to in turn affect the nervous system. The cause and effect go one way, from nervous system to conscious state, not from conscious state to nervous system. Recall that for the interactionist McDougall, cause-effect went both ways. Uh, and in a famous pas passage in the Automata essay, Huxley says that consciousness is a collateral product of the working of the body, like um, the steam whistle which accompanies the work of a loco locomotive engine. So the whistling is a collateral product of the working of the engine and does not affect how the engine works. Likewise, consciousness is a collateral product of the working of the body and does not, in turn, affect how the body works. And you can quibble with this analogy, but it's probably beside the point. <laughs> uh, Huxley says that our states of consciousness are symbols. I think this is actually a really interesting idea that comes out of Huxley. So Huxley says that our um, states of consciousness are symbols of changes to our nervous systems. Other people have taken up this idea in the 20th and 21st century. So uh, our states of consciousness are uh, symbols of our nervous system. It's kind of like uh, people would now say it's like the user interface to our nervous system or something. Our sensations and our desires and so forth tell us what's going on in our nervous system, but they don't actually impact the nervous system. But if consciousness does not change anything material, it, uh, it's difficult to see what purpose it serves, right? So the engine in Huxley's analogy can get along well enough without the sound of a steam whistle, and it seems that we can get along well enough without consciousness. Huxley seems uh, does seem to me let does seem to me to be less overtly spiritual than or religious than McDougall or Fullerton, and he famously invented the term agnostic for himself. Uh, but perhaps he thought there was some spiritual function for consciousness. I'm not um, exactly sure about that. All right, so to conclude, today I talked about three classic ways of thinking about the mind from a dualistic perspective. We had interactionism, in which body and mind recipro reciprocally influence each other. We had your parallelism, in which body and mind move in lockstep, but this synchronized movement cannot be explained in terms of cause and effect. And we had epiphenomenalism aka automatism, in which the body produces consciousness or activates consciousness, which is perhaps an immaterial substance or perhaps an extra property of matter. Um, but consciousness, in the epiphenomenalist view, does not in turn affect the body. So I'm uh, just kind of looking toward the future. I'm not sure if there are modern parallelists, actually. Uh, there probably are, but um, it's not something I see discussed a lot. Uh, Certainly the common sense view of the mind is interactionist. So simply as a matter of the culture in which we, at least Westerners, grow up, we tend to be Cartesian interactionists just by default. We tend to believe that our minds are somehow separate from our bodies, although, so some, although also somehow inside our bodies, and um, are both affected by our bodies and are able to affect our bodies. My son and I were recently reading a book called The Great Brain Robbery. It's kind of a kid's book or young adult book. Um, and it depended, it depends, the story depends on this common sense view of the mind. 
Epiphenomenalism is also pretty current. It was argued for in the 1970s, kind of a new epiphenomenalism was argued for in the 1970s by the philosopher Keith Campbell, and it has also been discussed a lot in recent decades because of the famous Libet experiments, which uh, seemed to show that our brains decide to do something before we are conscious of deciding. Um, then epiphenomenalism is also historically related to the newer theory of illusionism, which I've already alluded to, which is um, espoused by Daniel Dennett and Keith Frankish and uh, a number of other people. Although, uh, just keep in mind that epiphenomenalism and illusionism are not the same. That's a, that's a story for another day. All right, so that's all I want to talk about today. Thanks for listening, as always, and have a good one.